Let me pray for us. Father, you are faithful. And that is such good news to us because if you were not faithful, we would have no hope. We have been faithless, but you have been faithful. And we thank you for the cross where we see your faithfulness and your wrath poured out on your faithful son in our place. Were it not for the cross, we would still be in our sin. But we thank you for being faithful, for making a way for us to be with you, for being faithful to us even when we are faithless. We pray that you would use your word today to make us more faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by pretending, or by asking you to pretend or imagine a scenario. You have spent the winter in Florida and you have just returned to Boone. Last Sunday was your first Sunday back at Alliance Bible Fellowship. When you left last October, things seemed so exciting. New believers were baptized on your last Sunday here. Everyone, including you, was energized by what God was doing in our midst. The only reason you left was because you hate winter and boom. But last Sunday, your first Sunday back was shocking. How things were when you left Alliance Bible Fellowship in October and how you found things last Sunday were completely different. For starters, there were people in the parking lot with signs encouraging you to vote for certain elders and deacons in the upcoming church election. As strange as that seemed, there were also three different groups of people selling shirts in the parking lot. You could buy a nice collared Carolina blue shirt that said Scott A all the way. Or a camouflage shirt that said Doug Dynasty. (laughs) Hey, Doug. Or a t-shirt that said Scott B is the guy for me. Steve Colley designed all those for you, and he is a a man of detail. I'll have you notice that the t-shirt is smaller than the other two shirts. He came and informed me that that was intentional. So, thank you. As you entered the building, there seemed to be a tension in the room. You tried to look past the tension, but you could feel it. The worship service began, and you had this awful feeling in your stomach. Some people started speaking in tongues without any kind of interpretation. The entire worship service seemed completely chaotic. An entire section was not served communion. You're not sure why, but it, it seemed very intentional. You found out that Scott A. would not be preaching for three months, and that did not make you happy. The worship service finally ended, so you went to the commons to get a cup of coffee, and you saw two friends, longtime members of ABF, sitting at a table, but they looked angry. So as you were standing in line, you decided to eavesdrop to see what was going on, and you discovered that the two of them were suing one another. They'd actually been in court all week long. Feeling completely dismayed, you went into the married couples class in hopes of something going right. But again, you were discouraged. Things were not as you had left them. 
There was actually a huge debate on whether or not married couples should be intimate with each other and even if marriage was appropriate. At one point, you even heard a rumor there was even a case of incest among us. And some people at ABF saw this was a good thing because it would make us more culturally relevant in a culture where its view of marriage is opening up. If that had been your experience last Sunday, would you be here this morning? If you think that all of that sounded completely absurd or maybe even a little edgy and inappropriate for a sermon introduction, I'd like you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Book of 1 Corinthians. Essentially, everything I just asked you to imagine was actual reality in Corinth. Maybe they weren't selling shirts in the parking lot, but it was a really messed up church. Last week, we began a new series called Life Together. The goal of this series is to help us to understand what being a gospel-centered community involves. In one of his books, Eugene Peterson says this, getting saved is easy. Becoming a community is difficult. Now, don't get too theologically picky with that statement. He makes a good point. Getting saved is a miraculous work of God that is kind of easy on us. He just saves us, right? But Loving each other day after day, month after month, year after year, that's easier said than done. I would like to suggest that becoming a gospel-centered community is particularly challenging in the American church. As Americans, we are, we are proud people living in a proud country. Individualism and competition in a free market society, that's the air we breathe. Humans in general, but Americans in particular, we, we have a difficult time putting anyone or anything in the center besides ourselves. And the American church is shrinking and facing greater hostility from the culture than ever before. Many local assemblies feeling this have turned to something other than the gospel in an attempt to woo people into their buildings and keep them there. Many churches in towns just like Boone feel pressure to offer a deal to people with very little expectations back. The fact is this, the average churchgoer in America would probably not return if that experience that I asked you to imagine was actually taking place. Church shopping is at an all-time high in America And if the church you've been attending suddenly has any issues, there's probably another church down the road that's currently giving away iPads to visitors and you feel led there all of a sudden. Now, I firmly believe there are good reasons for leaving a church and going to another. I firmly believe there are good reasons for planting a new church, even in your own hometown where you're a part of things. But... I find it fascinating that Paul never encourages anyone in the Corinthian church to move on to a healthier or better organized body. He doesn't say, just bag that one and start second church of Corinth. Instead, he calls the Corinthian church to work every single one of those situations out. This morning, my aim is to push you a little bit to challenge you to take your concept of community to to another level. I don't want anybody in here to feel scolded, but I do want people to feel challenged. 
So picture me as a physical therapist urging you to use some muscles you haven't used in a while, or picture me as a nutritionist urging you to consider some things in your diet for the sake of your health. Sometimes a doctor has to to poke and prod just a little to make sure you're healthy. And that's what I wanna do this morning. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter one, verses one through 17. Let me read it for us. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. In our passage this morning, with the help of some other passages kind of backing it and uh, the book of Corinthians as a whole, shows us three things. First, life together is messy. Second, life together is only possible because of the gospel. And finally, life together is threatened by division. So let's dive into it. First, life together is messy. The history of planet Earth tells us that life together is messy. You can read history and how on earth could you not conclude that humanity has some issues? Humanity is not sinless. When you read history, you know this. World history is messy. At times, it's just flat out ugly. There are some bright spots, but world history displays humanity's inability to live justly, walk humbly, and extend mercy. But it's not just history. The Bible tells us that life together is messy. If you have ever read any significant chunk of scripture, you know this. Almost every Old Testament hero also has some pretty significant flaws. Their lives were messy. Their families were messy. The story of Israel is messy. You go into the New Testament and and you see mess there as well. The Bible doesn't hide the messiness of people. Instead, it exposes the messiness and it offers Jesus as the only answer to that mess. 
This is why God sent Christ. Christ entered into the mess to make salvation possible. Christ lived perfectly. He died sacrificially and he rose triumphantly so that we could be saved from the mess that is in this world and from the mess that is in our own hearts and lives. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost and messy. Consider your family. Consider your friends, your neighbors, the people you work with, your own life. Is there not weakness, deficiency, selfishness, sin? You can see it. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, don't compare your life to Hitler's. Compare your life to the holy creator of the universe and then ask yourself if you're guiltless. Because sinners live on planet Earth, life is messy. And church can be messy. The Corinthian church was really messy. It was church at its worst. Major divisions were present. People were lining up against each other based on which leader they liked best. That's chapters one through four. There was a case of incest that made some in the church feel proud. That's chapter five. People were suing each other. That's chapter six. Great confusion about marriage was present. That's chapter seven. Various expressions of idolatry were present. That's chapters eight through 10. And then chapters 11 through 14, the worship gatherings were completely chaotic. That's church. And it's worse. Now, it's true that Paul was calling uh, for this mess to be cleaned up. He wanted it dealt with. And it's true that a Christian is called to live a holy life that is, in fact, a cleaner life. Christians are supposed to live in such a way that our lives are less messy because we're walking according to the Word of God. But every Christian is a work of God in progress. If a church is filled with believers who are works in progress, and if a church is reaching out to the community and new believers are continually coming into the church, then church, life together is going to be messy. Every week when we gather together as a church, we have unbelievers who have come in our midst and we have believers in every corner of this building. The children's ministry, the youth ministry, worship gatherings, there are believers present in all of those places and there are unbelievers present. And they're trying to figure out, is, is this what I need? They're searching and we want them there. And every believer, whether they are six or 60, has areas of grace and areas of deficiency. What I mean by that is that, that every believer, believer has areas of their life where you can see the gospel's transforming power and you can say, wow, God's doing a work there. And every believer still has areas of weakness and brokenness and sin where God's still doing his work. The truth is that every week we have believers and unbelievers who are among us. And even those believers are not perfect. This is why your child might have his Cheerios stolen in a Wally Oasis. This is why your child might go to Kid Zone and have another kid say something mean to him or her. This is why if your teenager comes to youth group regularly for seven years, they'll probably have at least one experience that wasn't encouraging and positive because somebody else was mean to them. And they'll say, I don't ever want to go back there again. 
It's why even as an adult, you could come here and from time to time be hurt because you were forgotten or misunderstood or somebody just said something mean. When we're wronged by someone else here, our instant reaction is to say, that shouldn't happen at church. And you're correct, but it should not shock you that Alliance Bible Fellowship is not heaven. There is not a perfect church in Boone or on planet Earth. And as one church member tweeted recently, if you find the perfect church, it will cease to be perfect as soon as you walk in. That is true. And we would all do well to remember that. So the question for you this morning is, are you willing? Are you willing to be involved in a church with some messiness? Life together is messy because humanity even redeemed humanity is messy. The believers in Corinth were coming out of and they were surrounded by a very sinful culture. Corinth was not the kind of place you would choose to raise a family, but God had many people there that he drew to himself. And yet, all of those people were still works in progress. And what is most fascinating to me about 1 Corinthians is that Paul does not say, go find another church. Instead, he calls for the church to believe the gospel and apply the gospel to every single mess in that church. And that's what we must do as well if we're going to live life together. And I, as I look at our culture today, unless revival happens, I think that church is gonna get even messier. 10 years from now, if our culture is, is still running in the direction it's running and people are coming out of that broken and wounded and, and feeling empty, they're gonna come here and they're gonna bring their mess with them. And if we bring our mess before God and he accepts us, we better extend that to other people. Paul believed that life together was possible because of the gospel. I believe the same thing. Paul believed that all of the messiness found in the Corinthian church found its solution in the gospel. And that's where we go to point number two. Life together is only possible because of the gospel. The gospel permeates this entire letter. Even in just the first 17 verses that I read, Jesus and God are just mentioned over and over and over. And it's just that way through the whole book. He's just constantly applying Jesus to every single situation. And you see the power of the gospel in Paul's life, his pastoral heart, it makes him thankful for this church, even though it is a mess. In verse four, Paul says he thanks God for the Corinthians all the time. Every time Paul starts to pray, and thank you for the Corinthians. If you read how the church started around Acts 18 and what, what all was going on in his life, you know that he really meant it. He was really attached to this church and he loved them and he was thankful for them. But as I read that, I had to ask myself this week, would I thank God if ABF was like the church in Corinth? Which it's not, but would I? And I gotta be honest with you, I'm not sure I would. Paul's pastoral heart was much softer and more patient than mine, which means that the gospel had gone deeper into him than it has in me. And that was the challenge for me this week is that I want the gospel to go even deeper such that I can say with him, thank you. We learn about 
several things about salvation and life together in verses one through nine. There's a lot there. I can't cover it all. But first, we learn that salvation is a work of God, not man. Paul says he was called by God. And he says that the Corinthians were made saints by the calling of God. To be saved by God is an action he takes for us. First Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Salvation is not merely a choice you make. Salvation is something God brings to you. Salvation is not merely a, a, a choice you make. It's something that he brings to you. The grace of God is given to us. It's not earned. It's not some sort of reward. It's a gift that we don't deserve. And 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that when God calls us to salvation, he calls us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So being a Christian is being someone who relates to and fellowships with Jesus daily. Christianity is not just an ethical standard we live by or it's not just a, a, a one-time decision that we make when we feel really guilty about something. Christianity is relationship with the Holy Creator restored. We fellowship with God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see and do you feel how utterly miraculous and wonderful that is? And this fellowship with Christ that we experience intimately and, and we experience personally is also experienced by other believers. Paul actually speaks of a small group of people and a large group of people. This letter is to the church of God, which is at Corinth. That's verse 2. And Paul goes on to remind them that they are part of others who in every place are calling on the name of the Lord. So Paul is speaking of the church locally, in this case, Corinth, and the church globally. Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us that there are believers in other places. Though we cannot live life together in the same way, we're still united with them. And we can, in some ways, live life together with believers in other places in our praying and in our giving and in our going, there are believers in the Middle East and Africa and Central America. We can pray for them and they can pray for us. We can give to those areas and the work of the gospel there and they can give to areas here and the work of the gospel here. We can go and share the good news there and they can come and share the good news here. Today, America is a mission field just as much as China. Other countries are sending missionaries to America But if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, perhaps you've had the experience of, of quickly and powerfully connecting with someone you didn't even know existed a few days before you got there. Ever had that experience? What makes that possible? What makes it possible to connect with a believer in El Salvador or China or Ukraine or, or the Middle East? What makes it possible is that you've had the same experience. Jesus Christ has come in and saved you. And that's a brother or a sister that you're looking at. You can't live life together with them every day, but you can experience a powerful connection in that moment because of Christ. The gospel and its effect in you and in that person in some other country, the gospel is what unites you. The global church is made up of believers, that is, people who have experienced Christ's redeeming and sanctifying work. It's a definitive action that God causes, and it's a lifelong experience of fellowship with Christ where we are made more holy by taking up our cross and following him. 
the local church is that group of people where we gather with regularly to do life together. So the question we have before us is, do we believe the gospel really can guide us through and help us figure out messy situations with the people that we live life together with? The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, creates a global people and a local people. And each of these individuals have experienced God's grace given in Christ And they have been gifted in Christ as well. Paul fleshes this out much more uh, later on in the book. But but this church had a lot of very spiritually gifted people. And they had some great leaders. But there was also some division. And this brings us to our third point. Life together is threatened by division. In Corinth, the local body of believers were being threatened by division. Division. And this threat is present in every local church around the world to include Alliance Bible Fellowship. In verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, or the New American Standard Version says, I exhort you. And that's a better translation of that word. It means to come alongside. And so so Paul is saying, look, I'm gonna come alongside you. We're gonna walk through this mess and we're gonna figure it out. And the gospel's gonna be our flashlight as we walk through it all, all right? And he says, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I exhort you that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. This should not surprise us. Life is messy. And as we've already seen, life was especially messy in the Corinthian church. They were arguing about everything from sex to what should and shouldn't happen in a worship service. We don't really know anything about Chloe, but her people had gone to Paul and told her what was happening. So he writes them this letter to tell them to believe the gospel and apply the gospel and live the gospel. Don't divide, be united and figure it out. In verses 10 to 17, and and really in those first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, we see at least four causes of division over leadership. First, Division happens when we overemphasize certain leaders. Second, division happens when we expect too much from our leaders. Third, division happens when we reject God-ordained leadership. And fourth, division happens when we let other things overshadow the gospel. Paul is not calling for uniformity, but unity. There's a difference in those two ideas. Paul knows that there's a diversity of people, diversity of gifts, and he celebrates that. As you read through the letter, you see him call the married and the single, the rich and the poor, men and women, with each one gifted differently. He calls them to be in harmony. He wants all of them to be in the same key. That's the gospel. But he's not asking all of them to sing melody. He knows that God makes all of us into different instruments for his glory, and our life together is richer for it. And Paul is, he's, he's forbidding the Corinthians from certain parties or groups or clubs within the church. The divisions that are starting to occur are because of quarrels and wrangling for position and valuing certain people and their styles or giftings over others. Paul wants the Corinthians to be united in the same mind and thought, is what he says. And that means to be united in, in gospel-centered observations, in gospel-centered judgments, and gospel-centered decisions. And it's interesting to note that there's never any indication that, that any of these leaders wanted the, the division. He never really goes after the leaders. He goes after the people in the church. The division was occurring despite what the leaders 
we're calling them to. So let's look at these four for just a minute. Division happens when we overemphasize certain leaders. In the Corinthian case, some said they were followers of Paul because he founded the church and he was their favorite. Others said they were followers of Apollos. Apollos seems to have been a very eloquent speaker, better than Paul. Paul even admits that. And some just love listening to Apollos. Others said, well, I'm going to follow Cephas. That's Peter. And I'm going to follow him because Jesus said he's the cornerstone of the church. So he's, he's my guy. So forget Paul and Apollos. I'm with Peter. Still others, perhaps the really spiritual ones, said, I follow Christ. Perhaps that was the correct group, or perhaps even that group was a bit off with their uh, prideful attitude. Paul doesn't really elaborate for us, but the point remains. The Corinthians were lining up behind their favorite leader, which was dividing the congregation. And this can happen in any church. And not just at a pastoral level. This church could divide if certain lay leaders were valued more than others. Division could happen if life groups, it could happen in life groups, it could happen in women's ministry, it could happen in men's ministry, it could happen in children's ministry, it could happen in youth ministry. And the, the division could boil down to, I like that person more than the other one. And that's a pretty shallow reason to divide. Second, division happens when we expect too much from leaders. This is a bit more subtle but I think it's here. Leaders are expected to live well. There's, there's a standard that's placed on leaders. Not only were some expecting one leader because, or exalting one leader because of their gifting, they were also rejecting other leaders because their gifting was different. So some followed Paul because he started the church and others rejected Paul because he just wasn't the preacher that Apollos was. This is why Paul goes on much later in the book to say, not everyone has the same gift or the same level of gifting. And that's a, that's a good thing. It, makes for us, it causes us to be a body. Expecting any leader to have every gift is an unbiblical expectation. Don't just apply that at a pastoral level. Apply that to your life group leader. They can't be omnicompetent. That's why we put life groups so that the body of believers can help each other. Third, division happens when we reject God-ordained leadership. Apparently, there were some who were just flat out refusing to acknowledge certain leaders in God's hand and putting them there in that position in that time. And this can happen today as well. Fourth, division happens when we let other things overshadow the gospel. In verse 17, Paul says his mission from Christ was to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's an interesting thing to think about. What is Paul saying? Here's what he is saying. He's saying, when I brought the gospel to you, I didn't bring it in some incredible package because I didn't want you to miss the message because the package was so impressive. So think about that just real practically for a minute. This gift is just beautifully wrapped and you become fascinated by the wrapping paper instead of the actual gift. That's what Paul did not want to happen with the gospel. But hundreds of churches today, hundreds of preachers today will focus almost all of their efforts on presentation and packaging and give almost nothing to content. They're more worried about what the building looks like than what the sermon said. And Paul would not be impressed with this, nor would Christ. 
Paul confronts each one of these reasons for division. He says, has Christ been divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. And then he goes on this little rant on baptism saying he didn't baptize very many people because he wanted to focus his energy and his attention on preaching the gospel. Then he thinks of somebody, oh yeah, I baptized that guy too. Other than that, I don't, I don't know. Just Paul being Paul makes the Bible a little more authentic to me. Paul is saying this. If all of you are followers of Christ, unity should be present. Christ is not divided. Don't exalt certain leaders. There isn't anyone worthy of being exalted except Christ. Christ was crucified for you. Nobody else. Christ is your savior. Nobody else. Not Apollos, not Peter. Furthermore, don't consider yourself to be more baptized because of the person who baptized you. And don't, certainly don't divide over who got to baptize you. Seems like a petty thing, doesn't it? But a lot of petty things can divide a lot of people. And Paul is also saying that our message is to be the gospel. And we must be very careful how we present this message. The American church in particular needs to hear this. There are a lot of churches that are adding a lot of lights and fog machines and videos and drama. So many things that could distract us from the message that we are sinners in desperate need of salvation, which is found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. We gotta be careful. People will be drawn to something that isn't the gospel and they'll go to hell for it. Life together is messy, but the gospel is more powerful than any quarrel you might find yourself in. The gospel is what makes life together possible. We are a large group of people with a wide variety of personalities, a wide variety of giftings, wide variety of preferences. The gospel calls us to lay aside some of those preferences or, or lean in on each other in certain ways so that we can focus on what matters. Jesus Christ crucified and raised so that we can have fellowship with God. If the gospel makes this possible, then the gospel makes this possible. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son into a messy place to pull us out of the mess and make us a redeemed people. Help us to spread that message to a community that needs to hear it. Help us to work things out that come up. Help us to work them out in the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.